Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be always acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our strength and our Redeemer. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, we pray. Amen. People of God, I suspect for a lot of people the connection between Christian faith and ecology is hazy at best. Pick up almost any textbook on ecology these days, and it will tell you that the current ecological crisis is caused in large part because of Christian theology. It's our fault. Now, that might offend you or anger you or even surprise you. But I think that we have to be honest as Christians. We need to confess our sins and take our part, take ownership of our part in the shaping of this common opinion and of the crisis that our world faces. For hundreds of years, Western culture, which has at least identified itself as Christian, has had a particularly low view of nature. And it has often justified this view with the Bible. First, we're told that human beings were given dominion of the earth. And we've often taken that to mean that we have divine justification to exploit the creation for profit and gain. A widely used biblical commentary from the 19th century tenaciously defends that position. Keep in mind that this was during a period when colonial feeding frenzy was going on all around the world. This biblical scholar writes this, It is God's law that neither man nor nation should hold title to a land or sea and let them remain undeveloped. The ignorant savage cannot hold large territories of fertile land merely for hunting ground. When the developer comes, he must retire. Mere priority of occupancy on a given territory cannot be a barrier to the progress of civilization. Wealth has no right to buy a county or a state or a continent and turn it into a deer park. The earth belongs to man. According to this view, the aggressive shall inherit the earth, not the meek after all. By this view, the earth and its resources were given to humans to utilize for their prosperity, to utilize and perhaps to use up. And anyone who doesn't see it that way best get out of the way because the bulldozers are coming. The second attitude that Christians often have toward creation that claims to be founded on biblical truth is the notion that since Jesus is coming back soon to destroy the earth anyway and take us all to heaven. What's the point of caring for creation? Why waste time polishing the deck of the Titanic? This view has particular resonance with evangelical Christians because we do love our end time scenarios. Why participate in saving creation when it's Jesus' will that it be destroyed? A third factor that has participated in a Christian neglect of the earth is how we've come to understand salvation itself. 
we've come to see and in the book of Romans and in fact in the gospel that, it, uh, that is preoccupied with the question, how can I get my soul saved and go to heaven when I die? But I would suggest to you that this is not the biblical question. The question that preoccupies the book of Romans and in fact the whole of scripture is this, how can a broken creation of which I am a part be reconciled to God? And I hope you can see the difference between those two questions because they're two very different questions. And whichever one is foremost in your mind as a Christian will shape how you read scripture and how you understand the Christian life itself. At the back of a lot of what I would consider to be bad theology of creation is a very old, old notion from the Greeks that the church has been fighting against for a very long time, for at least as long as there's been a church, and which in its better moments the church has recognized as heresy. And that's the Greek idea called Gnosticism. Gnosticism teaches that spiritual things are good and physical or material things are bad. Therefore, the creation has not much value in the Gnostic framework. And I fear that most of us Christians have drunk deeply at the well of Gnosticism. So it makes perfect sense to us somehow that the earth has no real value to God and that one day God will simply eradicate matter altogether and just take our souls to heaven. You can find this idea in the Greek philosophers, but you can't find it in the Bible. And yet the idea is that Christians, that the idea that Christians need only concern themselves with spiritual things runs deeply in the modern Christian psyche. We modern Christians are ready. We've pretty readily decided to leave the concerns of ecology to tree-hugging liberals and New Age druids. Bible-believing Christians, on the other hand, have to concern themselves with evangelism and church planting, the spiritual things. But I would suggest to you that this is a dangerously false distinction. Let me try to illustrate with a story. Less than a decade ago, the tiny country of Bangladesh experienced the worst flooding in her recorded history. Now, Bangladesh knows flooding. With annual monsoons and seasonal meltings of the Himalayan glaciers, the flood season is common fare in that region of the world. But for the last 10 years or so, the floods have been different in intensity. Nothing could have prepared the Bengali people for the immensity of the destruction that was coming their way. Whole regions of land disappeared. Rivers of mud buried entire villages. People and animals were drowning in mud. Christian groups such as World Vision found themselves dealing with the aftermath of this devastation And one story is told, but it's a story that's representative of thousands of people and their plight. In this instance, the crisis workers encountered a peasant woman who came into their care after this flood. Her home had been cut off from civilization by the rising water and rivers of mud. And she lost her husband when he attempted to cross the rising river in order to get food for the stranded family. When he failed to return home, 
the woman took her four-year-old and her two-year-old to the river's edge to search for her husband. And as they walked along the embankment, her innocent four-year-old stepped at a place where the earth had eroded away and was swept away by the currents. If she could have done anything, it would have been abandoning her two-year-old, dive into the water after her child. But that moment of panicked indecision was too long and the four-year-old died. A few more days passed and the grieving widow had to deal with another problem. The water was contaminated and both mother and child were desperately ill with dysentery. And soon her two-year-old died as well. The mother was rescued as the sole survivor of this family. And the rescue workers from World Vision heard hundreds of these kinds of stories. And you might be asking yourself, what does that tragedy have to do with the environment, much less with Christian faith? Well, I I think the answer to that question, to both questions, is everything. Because as the rescue workers began to assess the situation in Bangladesh in the aftermath of the flood, they began to see the interconnectedness of things. Whether you believe the theory of global warming or not, something accelerated the melting of the Himalaya glaciers at twice the normal rate. And add to this the fact that a century of deforestation on the slopes of the mountains had stripped away the natural barrier to the volumes of water that came down the sides of the mountain. This removed the topsoil and carried it into the rivers and then into the villages, creating those rivers of mud that buried much of Bangladesh. And in the aftermath of this, the piles of rotting carcasses and mud and pools of dirty water became festering sources of disease and epidemic. Why has this happened? Well, human greed, which perpetually pollutes the air for selfish reasons, destroys the earth, removes the natural barriers, contributed to this unimaginable situation. This is what the Apostle Paul is referring to when he says that the creation groans. There's something desperately wrong. And Christian missionaries and social workers around the world are learning something. After centuries of thinking among Christians that we need only concern ourselves with spiritual matters, they're learning that we Christians have to be environmentalists too. In order to save people, we need to be concerned about their environment, about the earth that God made. Because authentic Christian faith doesn't permit a separation between the secular and the sacred. And if we're going to offer the good news to people... We have to become their advocates by putting an end to the exploitation of their land and the rape of creation. It used to be considered common knowledge that only liberals were concerned about such things as human rights and ecology, while we Orthodox evangelical Christians were concerned with spiritual matters. But we don't have the leisure to think that way anymore. That kind of dualism is, in fact, unbiblical and, I would suggest, sinful. It's becoming obvious in our world 
that not just your immaterial soul is in peril, but the whole creation is groaning for redemption. And if Christianity doesn't involve the whole person, and in fact the whole creation, then it's not an adequate solution to the human predicament, because our destinies are interwoven with the created world. I recently spoke to a young woman who, although she was an unbeliever, had been invited to go camping with a group of Christian college students. It's a time-tested evangelistic technique to trap a pagan in the wilderness, (laughs) no means of escape, and relentlessly witness to them until they crack. This young lady said that if she had any interest in Christianity before she went on that trip, it was gone by the time the trip was over. She said she was appalled at the slovenly and careless treatment of nature by these Christian friends. They dropped trash everywhere, she said, carelessly trampled on endangered plants, basically left their ugly mark everywhere they went in the forest. And when she asked them about this, the common reply was, all this is going to burn when Jesus comes back. Let's talk about your soul. That's what really matters. Well, this young woman laughed that these Christians were trying so hard to convince her that God had created the world in six days, while at the same time they seemed to have no regard for what God had made. Martin Luther was once asked what he would do today if he knew that the world would end tomorrow. And his reply was, I would plant a tree today. Luther understood that the promise of new creation was very much connected to the present creation. Our belief in the return of Christ shouldn't foster a careless attitude towards God's world. It should deepen our respect and our responsibility toward it. And our love for God should extend to what God has made. Or to put it negatively, if you're renting an apartment and the owner is coming to visit next week, Do you spend that week trashing and destroying that apartment in anticipation of his coming? Or do you spend a little extra time getting it in a presentable shape? We are stewards of what God has made. He has entrusted it to our care. And I fear that we have been very careless with what belongs to God. The parable of the steward should come to mind when we think about God's creation We Christians in the 21st century will not be able to present the gospel to our neighbor in a culture that that sees increasingly the problems of creation, the problems that we've inflicted on nature by our selfishness. We will not be able to effectively proclaim the good news to these people if we continue to destroy or despise God's creation. It's inconsistent with our confession to praise the Creator and despise what He has made. I don't know if you've ever considered this before, but think about how the Bible is laid out for us. The very first sentence of the book says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Followed by two chapters, describing the meticulous care with which God made the world and declared it to be very good. 
Then you go to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, and the final two chapters begin with the words, Then I saw the renewed heaven and the renewed earth, with God proclaiming, Behold, I am making everything new, the whole creation being made new again. And in between, you have all these statements, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. I think that this beginning and ending says something about the very heart of God. Does creation have value to God? Should it have value to the children of God? If you don't have an answer, consider this. Genesis tells us when the, that when human beings were created, that we were made from the very dust of the earth. We're created from the same substance that animals are, from the same source that plants thrive on. We're connected to this creation. In fact, the Hebrew word for human, Adam, is taken from the Hebrew word for earth or creation, Adama. Human beings are earthlings by their very nature. And God told these earthlings, these human beings, from the very beginning that it was their job to cultivate and care for the earth. Human beings are earth keepers. And yet, as earth keepers, we have rebelled against the creator and the whole creation has suffered. The curse against humans affected the reproductive experience. The woman is told with great pain you will give birth to children so that the joy of new life is tinged with pain and suffering as a reminder that we live in a broken world. The curse against humans affected the, the earth itself. God says to Adam, cursed is the ground because of you. So from the very beginning, the destiny of creation has been tied up with human destiny. And Paul tells us that the redemption of creation is tied up with our redemption as well. Human sin and rebellion has introduced brokenness into the created world. Untold suffering and calamity, disease and death are now part of the whole story of creation. And in today's text, Romans 8, the Apostle Paul picks this theme up when he says, your present suffering doesn't compare with the great glory that God has in store for us. Paul isn't denying suffering like some people do, as if real Christians don't suffer, nor does he offer simplistic explanations for why we suffer. Paul simply says the suffering that you experience now is incomparable to what God has in store for you when he sets things right again. Now this is not, as some would guess, a promise that one day you will escape it all, that you'll fly away to heaven getting away from this nasty world of bodies and material substance. Paul promises is What Paul promises is the Christian hope that we will be physically resurrected, made whole again, and that the whole creation itself will be resurrected and restored to its original glory. For now, the creation is experiencing frustration, anxiety due to the intrusion of human sin and abuse. But there is hope, Paul says, that creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay. And here, 
is when Paul brings us back to the childbirth image introduced in Genesis chapter 3. He says that the creation is ready to give birth. It's already having contractions. It's crying out with pain, but also with anticipation because of what will soon be born. Now, personally, I don't know a lot about birth pains, but I understand it's slightly uncomfortable for at least a few minutes. But even from the perspective of the father, I hear it's not, easy, it's not easy to watch. It's the sort of thing that if we were thinking rationally, we would avoid. But back in the good old days, we did, right? When I was born, say, 40 years ago, we had the good sense to send the daddy into the waiting room to smoke cigars, and we shot the mother up with drugs. Childbirth is like an appendectomy. You went to sleep, and when you woke up, they present you with whatever they've removed from your body. (laughs) But modern parents are a much braver sort. They want to experience the whole sensory roller coaster that is childbirth. The mother endures hours of agony just to have that proper sense of participation in the whole thing. And the father remarkably stays in the birthing room Apparently, so the wife has someone to verbally abuse. (laughs) I'm going to write a book about my theories someday. (laughs) But all joking aside, I think that there's a real integrity to this approach to childbirth. What Paul describes is the current condition of creation, groaning in the pains of childbirth. childbirth. He talks about the fact that we Christians are witness to that that we Christians who have the Spirit of God are groaning alongside of creation. We share in the pain of creation. We, We do not deny the fact that there is pain. We experience it. The old attitude that religious people should remove themselves from the world, should be disengaged from the whole messy affair, is the theological equivalent of waiting in the waiting room or getting shot up with drugs. We don't want to see the messiness of it. Either way, we fail to groan with creation because we've removed ourselves from the pain. We cease to identify with the broken condition of God's world. And in the end, we have little sense of responsibility or ownership. But Paul says that it is the spirit within us that compels us to groan with creation, to be witness to this messy birth And that's a very interesting notion to me because we are tempted to think about the role of the Spirit largely in terms of private religious ecstasy. We think about the Spirit coming on us and removing us from the cares of the world, bringing us to some kind of internal conviction or otherworldly bliss. But in Scripture, the work of the Spirit is very much this-worldly. Genesis describes the Spirit of God in the throes of the birth of creation, hovering over the waters of this newborn earth like a mother over the crib of her child. And the book of Revelation talks about John being in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and what he sees in the Spirit is the unveiling of human sin and brokenness, the horrible condition of the earth, and finally the hope of a restored creation in Jesus Christ. He becomes witness to the whole messy affair. 
Paul tells us that the Spirit of God causes our hearts to cry out in tandem with the groaning creation because we're both longing for the same thing. Our destinies are tied up together. We're waiting for the child to be born. In the beginning, when human beings were in proper relationship to their Creator, they were also in proper relationship to the creation. But all that has changed. And Paul says that in Jesus Christ, we're given the Spirit to help us in our weakness so that we once again can turn our hearts toward God and turn our hearts toward God's world. Not worshiping the earth, not despising it, but groaning with creation as full participants in this birth process as we wait together for our day of redemption. C.S. Lewis can have the final word today, since this weekend is my birthday. (laughs) He says, To treat nature as God, or as everything, is to lose the whole pith and pleasure of her. Step away, look back, and then you will see clearly. This astonishing cataract of bears, babies, and bananas This immoderate deluge of atoms, orchids, oranges, cancers, canaries, fleas, gases, tornadoes, and toads. How could you have ever thought that this was ultimate reality? Offer nature neither worship nor contempt. For she is a creature, but nevertheless she is God's creature. The theologians tell us that nature, like ourselves, is to be redeemed. The vanity to which she was subjected was her disease, not her nature. Nature will be cured, but cured in character, not discarded, not sterilized. When that day of redemption finally occurs, we shall still be able to recognize our old enemy, friend, playfellow, and foster mother, But now she will be so perfected as to be not less herself, but more. And that will be a merry meeting. Jesus promises us that all things will be made new. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.